I'm John Show, a bishop in the United Methodist Church serving Greater New Jersey and Eastern Pennsylvania. Today, I come to you with a heavy heart. Ida, the storm, caught us all by surprise, and we're still learning about the damage that was done by Ida. We're seeing that uh, seven of our churches were badly flooded. One of our parsonages was flooded. We also see in communities devastation, people having to get out of their homes, many people rescued. More than 25 people died here in New Jersey because of Ida. This has been a devastating storm. No, it's not as, as, as great as Superstorm Sandy, but the lives and the churches that have been impacted have been every bit as significant as Superstorm Sandy was. And so we're gonna need to work together. We're gonna need to work together to help churches rebuild. We're gonna need to work together to help communities and, and neighbors rebuild. There are people who are out of their homes. It'll take uh, years for some of them to get back in their homes. And it will happen because Greater New Jersey comes together and helps in our communities. So today, I'm asking you to give generously. We've started a fund to help people here in New Jersey to recover from Ida. This is our opportunity to do all the good we can so that God will shine in our communities. This is our opportunity to come together as United Methodists and show that we are stronger together. And this is our time to remember, as Jeremiah 29, 11 says, God did not bring us to this place for our destruction, but a future with hope. With you and your generosity and working together, there is a future with hope for people and communities that have been uh, destroyed, for churches that need to rebuild, for other communities and families that need our help at this time. So let's all work together for a future with hope. Oh, good day, everyone. I was waiting for the signal in the back there for me to say good day, and no one gave me a signal. Uh, welcome back, Marilyn. <laughs> so it's good to see you all here today. It's good. I'm so glad that you could be here as well online, and uh, thanks for uh, uh, joining us. Thanks for uh, being here in this space as well. And, and you know, we're in the series we're calling Underlying Conditions, and one of the most, uh, let me start with a story, one of the most unusual stories that we will probably be telling our grandkids is the toilet paper shortage of 2020. Uh, really, when you think on it, it's kind of an odd response that we had in March of 2020. Toilet paper was flying off the shelf. And really, why toilet paper? It just seems like such a, a, a strange thing, something we really rarely think about or only think about in certain moments. But yet, uh, that became the thing of the news feed is the toilet paper shortage. Where would we find more toilet paper? And while it seems odd, there really was a simple explanation for it, and it is that fear. Something new and something unknown was happening to us, and because of what was going on inside of us, we responded with fear. And social scientists say that uh, stockpiling is a common reaction to fear, that there's a fear of, uh, and fear is contagious. And because fear is contagious, it led to 
shelves being emptied. And the power of social media just made it even more so that we found uh, lots of signs in our stores that said there just wasn't enough supply for the demand, that toilet paper was being stored in basements for a future pandemic, and it was happening nationwide because of an unknown fear and what might happen. Not to tell you that in all the post-apocalyptic movies I've ever seen, and I've seen a lot of them, never was toilet paper the thing that was hoarded. That's never become the thing, but it was. So Hollywood missed that uh, completely, that that was the thing. Uh, now, some of us may want to argue that, uh, and we're going to come back to toilet paper in a few minutes. Well, actually, at the end. Uh, so some may want to argue this pandemic experience didn't change us, or we defiantly say, I'm not going to allow it to change us. But unintentional lifestyle choices and habits develop over time, and they develop because of the pressures or because of the things that are happening around us. And so the last 18 months, if we are most honest, we have to confess that the last 18 months have changed us, all have changed all of us in some way. Uh, for instance, our view of toilet paper is now different, right? And we, how we view our world and how we view ourselves in the world is changing, and it's going to continue to change. So we're in this series that we're calling Underlying Conditions, where we're looking at how there are things that may be staring below the surface of life, that there may be feelings or there may be attitudes, and often these can go unknown and unchecked in our lives, and we want to identify those things that can bring greater health to our lives. When we can identify those things, it'll bring greater health to our lives, greater health to our relationships, and even to our spirit. The challenge, though, is being aware of those things, because often they lurk beneath the surface of life. So we have to be intentional, and we have to be purposeful in finding out what those are, and then working to change. So Today's story, before we read it, I want to encourage you to read it yourself. It's the only story in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the only miracle story that is told in all four Gospels. So Matthew, when he was writing, Mark, Luke, and John, when they were writing those, those four people, when they are writing those four, four uh, accounts of Jesus' life, the only miracle that they all included was this story that we're going to look at. And it's not only that, it's, it's it's not a miracle where someone's healed from being blind or deaf or paralyzed, not someone who's sick. It's really not, when you look on the surface, it's really not that tremendous of a miracle in that people's lives are changed because of it. It's kind of more on a basic need level. It's feeding people when they've missed a meal. And we've all missed a meal. I skipped breakfast this morning because I knew I was going to talk about this and I wanted to skip a meal to demonstrate to you all that I can skip a meal. I don't skip a lot of meals, uh, but I did skip a meal this morning and I'll be fine. But this miracle is a miracle about people who needed to skip a meal, but yet Jesus provided for them so that that 
meal wasn't skipped. It's interesting, and I think there's a reason why that story is told in all four Gospels beyond just the miracle itself. And so that's what I want to try to unpack for us. And I want to encourage you to read it because I'm going to kind of take those four accounts. Each author told tells it in a little bit different way, but I want to put them all together and kind of tell the story. Uh, so I encourage you to read it uh, throughout the week here. So the crowds are following Jesus and his disciples. And uh, John says this, when the apostles returned. Now, the apostles were the disciples and some other followers, and Jesus had sent them out to do some ministry. And they had gone into the different towns in the area, and while they're in those towns, they were telling people that the kingdom of God was here. And they were talking about Jesus and talking about all that was going to happen and all that did happen already. So, they, uh, so when the apostles returned from that, John says, they told Jesus everything that they had done. I imagine they came back excited. Excited about this is their first ministry trip. This is the first time they've gone into the towns and they're excited about the response from people in those towns. Then he, Jesus, slipped quietly away with them toward the town of Bethsaida. I think they needed some more time to debrief all that had been happening, all that had happened over these last few hours or days of ministry. But the crowds found out where he was going, and they followed him. See, these are the people that had just heard the disciples talking about Jesus, and they came to follow Jesus. So a crowd begins to gather. Jesus welcomed them and taught them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who were sick. So we see now in the story, as we're going to continue reading, that Jesus is interrupted by crowds. And he now chooses to teach and heal some sick people all day. So all day long now, he spends time with this crowd of people who had been an interruption because he and the disciples were headed to do something else. And John continues and says, Late in the afternoon, the twelve disciples came to him and they said, Send the crowds away to the nearby villages and farms so they can find food and lodging for the night. There is nothing to eat here in this remote place. So the disciples suggested Jesus, you know, they, they seem to be um, well-meaning in this. They said, Jesus, hey, send the crowd away because they've got to be hungry. Now, the implication here is that because we're hungry too. You see, in one of the other gospel accounts, one of the authors lets us know that the disciples had not eaten either. So everyone now skipped a meal because they've been busy. They've been doing a lot. They've been working hard. Uh, the disciples probably have been working with this crowd, organizing them, and Jesus has been teaching them, and no one has taken time to eat. So send them away because I'm sure they're hungry. But Jesus said, you feed them. Jesus tells the hungry disciples feed the crowd. Now they give an economical excuse for why it is impossible. It's going to cost a small fortune. And they said, but we have only five loaves of bread and two fish. So they've already taken an inventory. Or are you expecting us to go and buy enough food for this whole crowd? And then John says this, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke also say it too, for there were about 5,000 men there. 
One of the writers tells us that the inventory that the disciples had taken, five loaves and two fish, were from a boy who had brought his lunch. And where did he come from? Is he attached to the 12 disciples, or is he part of this crowd of thousands? Did the disciples already know about this food? And were they saving it? Because, you know, five loaves and two fish will go pretty far with 12 disciples and Jesus. It's going to do nothing for a crowd of 5,000 plus. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell us that a big crowd has gathered, 5,000 men, and the implication is plus women and children. Now, every Orthodox male Jew in the first century would carry a basket with him every day. It was kind of like a satchel. It would be like, in our day, a backpack. It's your everyday carry. And inside your backpack, or inside this basket that every Jewish male in the first century had, would be the things they would need for the day. There might be some water in there. There would also be some food in there. It would be food that would be for if you're traveling through a town and you weren't near a place where there was an orthodox uh, grocery where you could get ceremonially clean food. So you'd make sure you'd have some things available, maybe bread, maybe fish, some things that you'd be able to eat for a meal as you go along. You know, kind of like in our backpacks, you'll find a granola bar or some beef jerky or at least some gum, right? Because we all have those things and we bring them with us every day. Is this why all four writers mention the number of men who were present that day? Did these men, did all 5,000 of them all forget their backpacks that day? Or were there 5,000 backpacks present? I mean, wouldn't they take something with them? Wouldn't at least a few of them think to bring something? A percentage of the 5,000 remember to carry the basket that they carry every day with them wherever they go? So Jesus then tells the disciples, he says, hey, put the people into groups. Have them sit in groups of about 50 each. So the people all sat down, Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, and he looked up toward heaven and he blessed them. Then, breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread and the fish to the disciples so that they could then distribute it to the people. And they all ate as much as they wanted, and afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. So Jesus has the disciples organize the crowd. Notice Jesus doesn't do it. He spent all day teaching, but yet he wants the disciples involved in this part, and he has them divide up this 5,000 plus crowd into 
organized groups of 50 or so. And then Jesus disperses or, or begins to distribute the food. He begins with a prayer. And then the food begins to be distributed. Five loaves and two fish. And after the meal, the disciples collect 12 baskets of leftovers. Where did they get baskets? Hmm. I wonder if there may have been baskets present. And just as a side note, why are there leftovers? I mean, is Jesus not good at counting when he does miracles? And why do the disciples collect the extras? Why doesn't everyone just take home what's left over? But Jesus has the disciples do the collecting. I wonder if there's a lesson in here for the disciples as well as for the crowd that's gathered. What must it have been like for the disciples who are good Orthodox first century males to now have to use their baskets to collect food that Jesus has provided. The hungry disciples who wanted to send the crowd away are now left collecting 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish. So what if there's not one miracle, but what if there are several miracles in this story? What if the first miracle is multiplying one lunch into food for everyone? Wow. That's pretty significant. 5,000 men plus women and children, probably around 10,000 people are gathered there in this crowd plus 12 disciples who are also hungry, and we know Peter can eat, and they're all gathered together, and Jesus takes five loaves and two fish, and he is able to multiply that into feeding a crowd so that there are enough leftovers to fill 12 baskets. That's pretty cool. That's a good miracle. But what if there is at least a second miracle? And the second miracle is changing self-centered people, the crowd and the disciples, into selfless people. I mean, which is a greater miracle? Multiplying bread or changing hearts? See, on the surface, there's hunger. On the surface, there are hungry people. But the underlying condition below the surface, the underlying condition that may be known or maybe it's unknown, is that there is a selfishness and a self-centeredness and a greed that has permeated into their lives. See, the crowd and the disciples, they were hungry, but they were also selfish now, am I reaching too far into this story? Maybe you could challenge me on that. 
But which is more likely? Is it possible that a crowd of 10,000 people, of men, women, and children, that of that whole crowd, only one boy had remembered to bring his backpack with his lunch in it? Or is it more likely that he was the only one who was willing to share? And he said, I've got five loaves and two fish. He was willing to give what little he had. See, what if no one was willing to share because they feared there wouldn't be enough? And so they held on to what they had. And maybe they were thinking, what good would my little lunch do in a crowd like this anyway? All I've got is five loaves and two fish. And look at the need and the crowd around me. I can't do anything with what I've got. But then Jesus took the lead. And he began by sharing a blessing. And then he continued by sharing an invitation. And he probably shared a really big smile as well. As he began to take the loaves and the fish. And he began to share it. And the disciples began to share it. And before they knew it, these, this crowd that now is in groups of 50 and they're seeing each other begin to share what's around them. And it turns out that there was enough, there was even more than enough for everyone. If this is what happened, it's not the miracle of the multiplication of loaves and fishes only. It's the miracle of the changing of selfish people into generous people at the touch of Jesus. It's the miracle of the birth of love and generosity in selfish hearts. It's a miracle of changed men and women with something of Jesus in them. And it banishes their selfishness. And this is so important in our current world reality. Cultural trends can change us. And we can, or we can change cultural trends. See, we can be the people who are hoarding toilet paper in moments when it seems like there's just not enough toilet paper. Or we can be the people that say, I've got an extra roll. The toilet paper hoarding of 2020 was an example of something called the law of scarcity. Uh, you may have heard of that. The law of scarcity says that if what we desire appears to be in limited supply, the perception of its value increases significantly. And fear is one of our great motivators. So when there's a fear that something that we desire appears to be limited in supply then it leads to selfish, self-centered behavior. And for us, in 2020, it manifested itself, at least in one way, in a toilet paper shortage. A contagious behavior based on perception and fear. And it changed how we look at toilet paper inventory forever. And I know that I was caught up in that as well. I was just in the closet, the hallway closet. I opened it up, and it was the last roll. 
But then I remembered, there's more in the basement. <laughs> now, not an unusual amount, just a regular amount that the courthouse would have, but there was more. But just for a moment, right, there's that fleeting thought of panic. And what happened? It appeared to be limited. And what happened? It increased the value significantly. So they was on the morning news shows. Where do they make toilet paper? No one cared before how we make toilet paper. But it mattered in March of 2020 how toilet paper was made. But you see, it wasn't toilet paper. It was fear. There was more than enough toilet paper for everyone. It was fear, and it spread like a contagion. Maybe what Jesus is telling each of us is that we live in this world that's surrounded by people without a shepherd. That there are people who have been eating from the sparseness of our culture, and they're desperately hungry for something more. Maybe it's a challenge for us as the church to lean into another way of living. That the best way to live this life is to think more about the people around you and think less about ourselves. That there needs to be this intentional change toward selflessness, to be influenced by what might be, to not be influenced by what might be lurking beneath the surface, to not hold tightly, but to loosen our grips. Loosening our grip to share even what little we have. Because in the same way that fear is contagious, generosity is contagious as well. And so the reason that the I don't have enough to feed everyone isn't a good reason to not share your loaves and fishes Because in sharing that, it can become contagious. Andy Stanley has a famous line. He says, do for one what you wish you could do for many. And his argument is, the world problems seem large and outrageous, and how can we fix it all? I can't do it all. I've only got two, uh, five loaves and two fishes. Do what you can with what you have. Do for one what you wish you could do for many. And in that, be amazed by what God can do with the little that you have. See, in the same way that a toilet paper shortage was a contagious response to what others were doing around us, a generous spirit is encouraging, and it is multiplied in others nearby. And generosity, even the smallest amount, even five loaves and two fish, is an antidote to a self-centered heart and a self-centered culture. And generosity here is more than only our resources, although if you've got a stockpile of toilet paper, consider sharing it. But generosity is more than only our resources. It's being generous in the grace we give to others. See, I know, as we sang in that song, that I stand in this place because of what Jesus did in my life. And my life is drastically changed. 
And if Jesus can offer that kind of grace to me, then why shouldn't I be offering that to others as well? And to generously give it out. What about being generous in our encouragement? Like I said last week, there are people who need someone who will listen. They're longing for a safe conversation. What if we were generous in our encouragement? What if we were generous in our assumptions toward others? To assume that someone doesn't mean the worst, but they're trying their best. To generously assume the best of others. What if we were generous in our forgiveness? Imagine how contagious that could become in our worlds around us. See, I'm convinced that people are searching for a new way and a better way to live in this new world that is ahead. And we're looking for and trying to find it. And the challenge of 2020 is that being in isolation for so long and being in the places that we were at, it was easy to become satisfied where we were or even uh, unaware that we were not changing, that we were not growing, that we were just comfortable. That we allow fear to be an underlying condition, that we allow The idea of selfishness, I've got to get what's mine, to permeate underneath our soul. I believe the story is still being written about this current reality. And I am sure that just like in history past, the church will have an impact on this world. And your world's around you and your world around you that in your neighborhoods and in the places that you will be, that if you choose to be generous, that if you choose to think of others ahead of yourself, that as we choose together to move beyond the fear of the unknown, to move beyond the law of scarcity and looking to collect and hoard and hold on to all that's mine. If we were to say, all I've got is five loaves and two fish, it's just a simple lunch. I can't do it for everybody, but I can do it for this one. If we were to do that, that would change the world around us. Here, let's pray together. And so God, I pray for the folks who are gathered here in this space, and I pray for all those who are watching online as well. God, I pray for all of us in all of our places, wherever we may be, that we would be able to reflect and look honestly about what may be lurking beneath the surface, the underlying condition. And God, I know it's easy to get caught up in those things that are going on around us, and, and, and it's real, and it's, and, and, and it's scary, and God, God it can be overwhelming. But God, a healthy life and a healthy spirit and healthy relationships requires us to to look at those things. To see if there is any bit of selflessness or selfishness that's in us. And God, that we would treat that with the antidote of generosity. Generous towards others. 
generous in our assumptions, generous in our forgiveness, generous in our grace, even generous with our resources, our time and our finances and our talents. That in that generosity, God, that it would be as contagious as the other things around us seem to be contagious. And that, God, we would change maybe just 50 people. But, God, maybe that would be changed into thousands and maybe into tens of thousands and maybe into changing the world. And, God, the church has done that before. The church has had an impact in moments like this before. And, God, I pray that the church would have an impact in this moment as well. And, God, that we would be a part of it. And so, God, that, I pray that that would be our desire in all of our places. And we thank you for all these things. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you're here in this space, I encourage you to uh, head out to the prayer park, which is right out behind me. Those of you who are online, thanks so much for being here. If you live nearby, rush over and maybe you can join us as well. Have a great day.